In this series, we've been using the metaphor of an illness and its diagnosis to talk about the relationship between the church and the racial issues present in America. As the country has changed, so has the illness, growing worse at some points and getting better at others. Good observation can lead to a helpful diagnosis of a problem, whether in part or in its entirety. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Michael O. Emerson and talk about the diagnosis that he proposes based on his current research. He talks about his research and how it helps us understand how the American church has gotten to the place it is in today. He presents a diagnosis for understanding the current state of the American church's relationship with race and provides hopeful possibilities for the future. All that and more on this edition of the podcast. We're a forum for discussion on the issues that are ruminating in the minds of churchgoers, but that are often not raised from the pulpit. Too long has the church shied away from grappling with tough questions and nuanced issues. We're your hosts. I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. Welcome to Questions from the Pew, where faith and culture meet. Questions from the Pew, season six, episode. I don't know. We'll we'll see how the episode <laughs> yeah, breaks. We'll see down. what episode this is. <laughs> yeah. uh, good to see you, Luke. How are you? Yeah, doing pretty well. Just hanging here in Denver. Uh, how's uh, how's the Texas heat? Oh, it's great. We're into the. <laughs> it's like a hot tub, but tri- just in triple the air. digits sometimes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's. It's Tough. wonderful. <laughs> the crunch beneath my feet when I go out onto the lawn is just a beautiful sound. Yeah, do people have grass there? I don't. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, grass in air quotes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, it should be a good uh, yeah. episode. Yeah, we're joined by um, a, a guest we've had before. It's been a few, what, two years now, I think? Yeah, right? A couple of years, like yeah. That. Um, yeah, we're joined by Dr. Michael O. Emerson. Um, a little bit about him. He completed his BA at Loyola University, Chicago, and he completed a, a master's degree and a PhD at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Currently, he's the Siobhan Fellow in Religion and Public Policy at Rice University. Uh, he's authored or co authored um, books, including Divided by Faith. Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America, uh, People of the Dream, Multiracial Congregations in the United States, as well as uh, Religion Matters, What Sociology Teaches Us About Religion in Our World. Um, He's the principal investigator of the largest study of race and religion ever conducted in the United States, which is funded by the Lilly Endowment, and that's kind of uh, what we'll be talking about today. But, uh, but yeah, Dr. Emerson, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. We're glad to have you on the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And uh, just following up on your conversation, uh, grass in air quotes, uh, being originally from the north, uh, it's, it's, it's just uh, weeds that they choose to call grass. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, all they the can get to grow there, pretty much. <laughs> Tough. Well, great. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we can start off with a little bit of a, a little bit of a ridiculous 
kind of segment here, <laughs> yeah. but just a, a way for our listeners to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, so we'll just fire off some questions. I think we did something like this last time as well. I can't remember if maybe some of these questions will be a repeat, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> uh, first off, coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no uh, early bird, early bird or night owl? Are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird, yeah. Is that out of necessity or is it just the way your body is is wired? When I uh, was a young professor and we had young children, my goal was <laughs> to go to work so early that I could be home by, say, 3. So I started getting up at 4.30 every morning, and that's kind of just mm. continued. Yes. I see. That's how it works. Once kids come into the picture, sleep Mm -hmm. just gets the gets thrown out the door. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's true. I can attest to that as well. Um, Any interests or hobbies outside of your field? Which again, we'll be getting into. But any interests or hobbies outside of that? Oh, sure. Yeah, Um, big sports uh, fanatic, uh, various teams, and uh, I wouldn't say garden but i'm very interested in like trees and uh, agriculture forestry things like that i actually have a son who is a forester so that kind of feeds my interest there what Mm -hmm. uh what teams are you a fan of well i am a fan of the teams here in houston and also where i grew up in minnesota so i typically root for those sets (laughs) okay that's fun (laughs) i'm a big michigan football guy Oh, yes. <laughs> so, well, you've had some good years here. Honestly, it's been a beautiful couple of years. <laughs> Anytime this you last, can beat Ohio State, right? I know. It was most of my life. We've just been getting pounded by them. So it's honestly, it's been a, it's been a beautiful two years. <laughs> yeah. Congrats. Uh, yeah. I love it because uh, Ohio State's coach, and I'm sorry if it's too much detail for people, but no, no. he has like this most amazing record. He wins like 90% of yes. all games, but because he's lost two years in a row, he's on the hot seat. The Michigan, <laughs> even though they've made it to the top four teams that, that make yeah. that playoff, his it, it, he's on the hot seat in a way. That's what I have heard. If he were to lose a third year, <laughs> hey, they should be they should be proud. They've lost to the second best team in college football the past couple of years, so they should <laughs> they should wear it with pride, you know. <laughs> and, there you go. Anywho, this is why I like being a Minnesota Gopher fan, because <laughs> and then what I love about it is we're never very good. So like, if we win more than half our games, we're yeah, just, just excited, elated, yeah, never great. disappointed. <laughs> Yeah. There's, whereas if you're Michigan or Ohio State, you know, if you don't come close <laughs> to winning it all, you're sad. It's true. Honestly, the heartbreak is real. But, yeah. yeah. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, but the old little battle for the little brown jug. Okay, we're really we're making deep cuts into college football. <laughs> That's the trophy that Minnesota and Michigan play for. Which Not much of a battle. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it is what it is. Yeah. <sighs> Well, um, all right. <laughs> I'm, I'm. A, I was saying over here. I'm over here. I'm not a, as big of a sports yeah. guy as either of you. So I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I'm just trying to keep up some right. of these references. We're alienating you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've lost half the audience. So yes, <laughs> truly. <laughs> um, no, no. I'm sure they're more interested in sports than I am. <laughs> uh, do you think technology is making us smarter or dumber? Dumber, one hundred percent. Oh, wow. Care to elaborate on that? Oh, my word. I'm getting dumber because of technology. (laughs) 
it's so sad you used to um I used to read books a lot more and articles and now we just all sit on our phones and get these little snippets of things. Mm. There's no depth mm. to how we think anymore. And we're, I think eventually we're going to move completely away from text and we're just going to be visual pictures, film videos. Mm. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. It's definitely, I mean, Instagram became a thing just cause it was just purely visual. So yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, that's might be going that direction. Mm-hmm. Well, then, as a follow-up to that, do you think what are your thoughts on artificial artificial intelligence? Is it good or bad? <laughs> oh my word! I have so many thoughts on that. You know, <laughs> and of course, <laughs> I just have to give a quick example that I love. Uh, we already my last semester in teaching, we already were finding students using it to cheat, right, to help write the papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we found an easy solution when you go to like chat gdp and things and you just ask them ask it did you write this it tells you honestly yes i did oh, so it's wow. quick easy to find out that they cheated but you know <laughs> that enough. won't last uh, <laughs> yeah yeah no i actually that's something i don't understand i get the intent that it could help us in some ways but it's just hard to imagine it's not going to have pretty bad repercussions in the end i mean we already know it's going to take away lots of jobs so then what are we going to do but also mm-hmm. Uh, history can guarantee there are bad people in the world and they will use it for bad Mm -hmm. things. And it's more powerful than anything else we've created so far. That's fair, honestly. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm going to just say what some people tell me, which is they would say every, every advancement led to some, like, you know, loss in jobs and that kind of thing, which I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of on the fence in this whole thing. I really don't know. But they yeah. would say, you know, the invention of the automobile, we don't need stable, you know, stable stables anymore. Or, or yeah. uh, you know, guns got rid of blacksmiths. We don't need to, you know, do that kind of thing. But, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, it seems like kind of orders of magnitude higher than kind of some of those advancements. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see at the very least. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, there's no job it can't do eventually. Like even sure. be a construction worker or something, you know, you think sure. it couldn't do. But mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. jump in um yeah yeah that was just a quick few questions just to get to know you but um yeah maybe obviously you can tell us a lot more and a lot better um about who you are so we'd love to hear a little bit more about uh your background your personal background faith background educational background and kind of what led you to the spot where you are in life and academia yeah in brief, so I, I was born in Chicago, but we quickly moved to Detroit. My father got a job for Ford Motor Company, 
And I'm um, old enough that we were there when the Detroit riots happened in the 1960s, which was mm -hmm. the biggest loss of life uh, from a riot in a hundred years of U.S. And that uh, it's <laughs> inspired my parents to leave the city of Detroit and to never live in a city again. We ended up in a, a very white suburb. It was a white only suburb actually of Detroit. Um, and then we moved to suburbs of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then even not further into small town where I ended up going to high school. So uh, by design and mostly because of the experience of those race riots, uh, I lived a white only life. I mean, truly, seriously, really never saw a person of color. And then um, I went to college at Loyola of Chicago and rock my world, right? Chicago is, you, know, you, you both live there. Yeah. Big city, diverse, very segregated. Mm -hmm. And um, as I'm going to college, uh, my campus is on two different parts of Chicago. So I had to go back and forth for classes. And the disparity between those two places was huge, but my downtown campus was kind of in between um, huge housing project and then what they call the Gold Coast, where the wealthy of the wealthy live. And, uh, you know, I, of course, noticed the difference in income, but also the racial difference in who lives in these two places. Mm -hmm. So I was majoring in psychology. I was just so struck by these differences I wanted to understand. Uh, and so this is why I study race, religion, and urban. And it started right there. All those things were intertwined. Why I was just became a Christian um, just before I graduated high school. And so I was going to church, but I was trying to understand why churches were segregated. I didn't get that. Right? I was mm -hmm. told that God loves all people. So what, but why do we worship separately? I just was so naive. Um, so yeah, that's where those interests developed. And I went to grad school to pursue those. Uh, I was very motivated. So I had my PhD by the time I was 25 and then I been a professor ever since. Um, I suppose I, do you want me to talk about what I do now or? Yeah, I would love to hear about that. Okay. So I just recently moved from being the department head of sociology at the university of Illinois, Chicago. And, uh, as you mentioned, I'm what they call a Siobhan fellow in religion and public policy. I'm at a think tank at Rice university called the Baker Institute. And so my full-time job is to think, to do research and then to you know, host conferences, workshops, uh, to integrate or bring together other people who are thinking about issues of religion and public policy, you know, mm -hmm. politics and such. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do now. Oh, that's great. And yeah, I think the last time we had you on, it was for uh, like a politics in the church, I think was the, was oh, the, yeah. the episode, uh, which was great. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess that kind of leads us into your next project, which I believe is coming out soon. Uh, but the book... Uh, titled The Grand Betrayal. Uh, it'd be great. I mean, I'm honestly just really interested to read the book when it comes out. Uh, but it'd be great if you could give us like your research focus and then, uh, yeah, I guess just a short summary uh, and why you think it's important. Sure. So it comes out of doing this um, big, large project that you described that went over several years here. And then as we were looking at all the findings, national findings, trying to make sense of what we're finding. And so let me just summarize it briefly. So race has always been the central dividing line or fault line 
uh, in the U.S. There are many others, but race is the one most woven into our constitution, into our laws, our policies, into the how we segregate ourselves in our cities and things. So the question is, why do we still, after endless attempts and people losing their lives and movements to make racism go away, racial injustice, why do we still have it? And in fact, you know, the events of the last few years would suggest it hasn't gone. It clearly hasn't gone away. So why? What we're arguing in the book based on the findings is that it's because race in the U.S. is tangled up crucial marker of American identity, and that is religion. I put it in a different way, it's that race itself has become religionized. It has taken on transcendent qualities, okay? So ultimately we're arguing that the reason racial justice won't go away, injustice won't go away, why it can't recede is because it's actually the life giving force of a dominant people group's religion. So we have Christianity, but what we're arguing in this book is that there's another religion unnamed, and we're actually trying to test to see what we call the religion of whiteness. It's a, you can think of it as a separate religion or a sect within Christianity. Uh, yeah, we can talk about what the religion of whiteness is, but yeah, it distorts <laughs> and contorts uh, Christianity. Sure. Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, some of the experience, so like I was actually talking to Riker right before you got on this, um, but like we just had the 4th of July, right? Um, uh, and so I, like at the church that I'm at now, which is mostly a white, it's a mega church, but it's mostly white. Like I, it's not trying to be multicultural. It's just a white church. Um, and we showed a video. <laughs> we just can't resist doing these kind of things, but we showed a 4th of July video. And, you know, I don't remember everything that it said, but one of the main lines that it said is, you know, and the founding fathers were guided by God's hand and his providence to whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's, and I, you know, I'm letting people know, but I'm just one little cog in the machine that is our church. Um, that it's like, I mean, this is, we're not even trying to hide it. This is kind of right down the center road of just good old Christian nationalism. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that's like what it is. Uh, and it was much worse in like the congregation I grew up in, which we would sing Battle Hymn of the Republic and, you know, America the Beautiful. Like we're singing these on the 4th of July Sunday. Um, anyway, so I guess, yeah, maybe if you could, is that what you're talking about when we talk about the religion of whiteness or is there more to it than that? Yeah, so I, I'm glad you brought that up. So um, I'm going to answer that in two different ways. So one is that we're arguing Christian nationalism is a component of something bigger called this religion of whiteness. And, and that we really need to understand the bigger thing if we want to make change. If we think it's Christian nationalism in and of itself, I think we won't succeed. When you were saying July 4th, you might remember a few years ago, the very well-known hip hop artist Lecrae posted a photo of people picking cotton. And he just said, my family in 1776. That's all he said. Yeah, if you ever read his biography, if you've heard the story, what that one photo did, this he was very popular among uh, white, white youth and all that, mm -hmm. right? Invited to churches and mm -hmm. selling millions of albums. Yeah. It all crashed. He didn't 
say anything beyond that, just a picture. And it was it was it a lie? It was not. That would have been his family in 1776. But he was accused of being anti-patriotic, un-American, ungrateful, anti-Christian. There's the key. What does how you think politically, how does that ever get have anything to do with whether you're a Christian or not? It's because these two things are tangled up into all ball into one and it we're arguing there's this religion about of race and the religion of christ and they've become entwined in a way that's much deeper than just christian nationalism sure so we can get into more about that but that's my overall argument mm -hmm. no that's helpful yeah and and so what when you say whiteness then can you give a definition of of what you mean when you say that yeah so i'll be just real be brief because right whiteness is such a vague concept <laughs> whatever we're just saying it's uh white folks and can be people of other hues white societies white folks this nation called what been able to dominate so when you are worshiping a religion of whiteness you're worshiping kind of that dominance. So here, I'll give you a formal definition of the religion of whiteness. Be a unified system of beliefs and practices. I mean, all religions are about beliefs and practices. And it venerates or sa makes sacred whiteness, this kind of set of beliefs and values and dominance of, of a racial group. And then it declares everything else that isn't associated with whiteness, including a picture of somebody picking cotton in 1776 and says those things are profane those make you an unfollower of the religion of whiteness and therefore you must be shunned you must be rejected you must be attacked no that's yeah well and it seems like any to me a lot of times when i see this it's it's like a narrative of i guess america but i guess whiteness is I guess America and whiteness are kind of married into this thing where if you're attacking like uh, or if you're just telling history from a different perspective other than the white American perspective about America, that's right. Which See, it that's... seems like what Lecrae is doing with the he's like, there's another narrative that's also happening here that we like to ignore. <laughs> Thank you. Right. It's yeah. and this was important. And it, that really helps. I think, you know, if listeners are feeling a little confused. It, when we say Christian nationalism, the, the, the complexity there, right, is that that means I'm a, a for America. But the reason it's more complex than that, and that's not quite capturing it, is exactly what you just said. That that's only it's one narrative, right? Uh, and Lecrae is not giving a false narrative; he's giving a different narrative. But it violates what's the unstated. Let's make sure we say that. Whiteness is unstated, so it's uncomfortable to talk about it for white folks, maybe for others too. And it's, you know, it's denied because we usually want to say it's just American. That's a false uh, equality there. America has many different people with many different experiences. You can't put them together, fuse them. If you can, that's proclaiming your dominance. You know, we control the narrative and we will enforce that narrative.
I was wondering um, if you could, just backing up a little bit in terms of, um, you know, conducting the research itself, if we could talk a little bit about um, your methodology um, in, in terms of how you collected the, the data that you interpreted. Yeah, I appreciate that. So what we did is we wanted to make sure that we were being wise about this. We first created a collaboration team, and this was 300 uh, people who are pastors, priests, uh, practitioners, other scholars of religion and race. And so every step of the way, we, like if we, I'll describe a survey in a moment, but when we devise a survey, we have all of those folks read it, react to it, suggest changes, say you're missing something or don't include this. So we got lots and lots of feedback. And then we would ask for steps, like here's what we know so far, what should we do next? So what we actually did is that of those 300, we interviewed uh, about 100 of those folks. We traveled around the country and we usually did it in focus groups of like two to six or seven people at a time. We filmed it and we just started with a very basic question. What do you think, what do you see as the relationship between race and the church today? And we had all kinds of questions, but we rarely got beyond just that question with a group of learned people boy they could talk about that and they did so from those discussions and because we filmed it we could re-watch and we use that to generate what is it that we should be doing a survey of just random sample of americans what should we be asking them so we did that we did a national survey the survey was done online so there's some advantages to that right rather than doing it on a phone or something because you can do some experiments where different things pop up and you can do two true randomization. So I'll talk about one in a little bit. Uh, and so that's what we did after that uh, survey. Then as we analyzed it, we realized we had more questions. So we did focus groups around the country with people in the pews, asking them to help us understand some of these responses. Um, and we also uh, embedded ourselves in some churches around the country to see you know, things like uh, Luke was mentioning, uh, you know, is there a, f a flag at the front or American flag or not? What songs are sung? Is race ever mentioned? Is it ignored? Just trying to see uh, in the everyday life of the church, how that worked. Mm -hmm. How does that play out with, um, with like church plants, like who don't have their own building? So they don't have at least the, again, the, the front facing structural architectural side of things. Mm -hmm. um yeah how did you i guess did you encounter those kinds of data points um and 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 how do you account for those kinds of situations yeah so the the reason that we like to start with the random sample of americans is because then when we can ask you know where do they go to worship if they do mm -hmm. then that uncovers like oh i go to this church that just started or mm -hmm. we meet in the house or something and so then we can follow up on that. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And um, so I, let me just give you some personal history. I first read your Divided by Faith book in my undergraduate uh, courses, actually in a quantitative reasoning course of all things. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, but so that's when I was uh, first introduced. Um, and honestly, that's when I, maybe it was happening a bit before this, uh, a bit before my time, but like the kind of mo monocultural versus multicultural conversation was happening, uh, especially uh, fervently at our campus. 
Uh, and I remember just conversations between fellow students. Uh, and one particularly sticks out where there was a Korean student uh, talking to a black student, um, both acquaintances slash friends of mine. Um, and the Korean student was like, well, why would I go? I don't want a multicultural church. I would never want that <laughs> because, you know, I live in this world, you know, five days out of the week. I'm here at, you know, college. There's tons of white people everywhere live in yeah. the world. So on Sunday, I just want to go and just be myself with, you know, my family or my friends, my people who are from my culture that I understand and who understand me without context. Um, and I think that's that's like one of the big push or like detractions from multicultural church. Um, or maybe it's only a drawback if it's uh, kind of this idea of white-led multicultural churches, which seems to be the what a lot of them turn into. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you can speak to, to that uh, mono versus multicultural congregations. Uh, and mm -hmm. then if you found any actually good multicultural churches that weren't... Uh, you know, kind of just white lead and yeah, if there's any examples or anything like that, anything you learned from them. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, um, I both heard that argument, uh, that claim, what you said with your friend and I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. So here, here I'm a guy who says that biblically we're, we're supposed to be worshiping across race, culture, economics, that's the mark of being a true Christian, a, a true Christian community is that those earthly divides are no longer predominant, but those earthly divides truly do exist and they weigh on people. So I get it where like my word, I just need to be with my people. <laughs> but here's the key. We got to get to the point where my people isn't my racial group or my ethnic group, but where it's my fellow Christians. And, you know, that may happen when there's only eight Christians left in the world, then we're going to not really care anymore about what race or economics, we're just going to cling to each other. So partly maybe because we're, there's so many still, but I think that's what God is trying to say. You ha we have to reorient ourselves um, and not take the world's categories as, as I mean, they exist. There's no, they impact us, mm -hmm. but I think we're being asked to rethink just completely reorient ourselves to who our people are. Sure, absolutely. Now, in terms of examples, yeah. And I can actually think of some examples and there's some in Chicago or, you know, that are, are white led too, but most of the examples where we think it seems like it's really effective and um, people aren't feeling like they've got to also adopt this religion of whiteness is usually led by a, a person of color. There again, I, there, that's not always the case. Um, so, but when when you have one that works, it's a, it is a beautiful thing. It's not perfect, of course, but yeah. it really can transform people. Thanks for listening to this edition of the podcast. We'll actually finish this conversation with Dr. Michael O. Emerson in part two, which we'll release next week. So we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Patreon. It's just www.patreon.com slash questions from the pew. If you can't support us financially, please give us a good rating or review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and that will help others find our podcast. Also, please comment and ask questions. You can do that by following and messaging us on Facebook or Instagram. 
You can also leave us a short voice message or text message at 312-725-2995. If you do leave a voicemail, please keep it under 30 seconds and tell us your name and where you're from. We'd love to include your voicemail in our Q&R episodes, but if you prefer for us not to, just let us know and we'll include your question in another way and without giving your information. The same goes for any messages you send us on social media or through text. This has been Questions from the Pew, a podcast in the World Outspoken Network. To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For Questions from the Pew, I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time. Bye.